So uh, this morning, if you would turn to the book of Job, and I know that we have been in the Gospel of John, and I uh, intentionally uh, left our verse-by-verse, um, book-by-book study this week because I anticipated getting here maybe on the 4th of July and being here with six people. And so I thought, well, you know what? I want to take the church through the Gospel of John together. So um, since most of the church can be here, then we'll, we'll take just a little deviation from, from that. And so we're going to look at the book of Job, uh, the first chapter. So if you turn your... Uh, in the Bible uh, to that. If, if you're not familiar with your Bible very well, just remember that the book of Job is right before the Psalms. It is really kind of the first book in the section of wisdom literature. So let us um, pray first, and then we will jump into God's Word. And Father God, you are the creator of heaven and earth. We thank you for providing atonement for us in Jesus Christ. We come to your word this morning. We are dependent upon your enabling grace to understand what the scriptures uh, speak to us, what the Spirit speaks to us. We need your empowering grace to do what it is that your word teaches us this morning. And Lord, we do desire this morning that you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to read that whole first chapter and then we'll kind of just dive into our time here this morning. So Job, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, And said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys 
feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is God's word for us this morning. As we think about this morning, and we as a nation were celebrating our declared independence from Britain so many years ago, when this nation was birthed, some of us this weekend could even be thinking about the celebrating of independence from government mandates that have recently been released. We'll see from our passage this morning, though, that we can never escape our dependence upon God. Further, we will see that we can depend on the Lord no matter how difficult life's circumstances become. Further yet, we will see that an independence from God in this life is a futile life. It is a life that is lived in vain. What will be your declaration at the throne of God? Think about that. And when we get to the end of our days and we go before the throne of God, because we are all going to go before the throne of God, what will we declare at the throne of God? Will we declare our faithfulness to Him? Will you declare all the great work on earth that you accomplished? Will you declare and recognize and remember all of the blessings that you received? I think we will declare more like Isaiah than that. I think as we come to the throne of God, we, we will declare like Isaiah, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. See, the Christian has only one declaration at the throne of God, a declaration of dependence. Dependence upon Jesus Christ and His atonement. Dependence upon God's mercy and grace for us. Jesus promises something to us in the Scripture that we skip, and I've said this several times, but He promises us something in John 16, verse 33. In this world there will be trouble. There's a promise from God that there will be trouble in this world. But I ask, what is the trouble, and why is there trouble? 
Well, Romans 8, 22 through 24 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees, right? What is trouble? When trouble comes, where is our hope? When trouble comes, we kind of can get mired in the circumstances of the thing that's coming at us, right? And that's all we can see in that moment. But trouble comes that we might see something more, that we might have hope, that we might not long for this life, that we might not long for the comforts of this life. And as a Christian, we groan inwardly in our spirit longing for our adoption as sons and daughters don't we we want we want our adoption into the kingdom of god to be complete and to be in in the presence of our king and there seems to be an aching in our souls for the day when the trouble of our own residual sin will be no more and then the sin of the world will no longer come at us and this eternal battle against the flesh is going to finally and fully be won Right? We are looking for that day, aren't we? When, when we will finally just be rid of this. Well, since the very beginning, the whole earth has been under the curse of sin. The believer and the unbeliever alike feel the pain of the curse. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, the curse on the earth is real and we feel the sense of the pain of that curse. There's a futility in life, isn't there? Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the preacher has something to say about how he sums up the futility of life, the futility of the struggle and the trouble and, and how he sums up this life. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Now, where we're getting at here is that I don't know about you guys, but now that I am 55 years old, I, uh, I feel the pain of my body that no longer cooperates with me as it did in my 20s. So I realize that as these pains come to my body now, and they last a little bit longer, and that um, exercise hurts a heck of a lot more than it did, that, that, that the days are getting fewer and fewer that I have on this earth, right? It's just one of the signs. It's one of the troubles and the problems that we face, right? And so here the preacher is saying, Remember your youth. Remember the God that you saw in your youth because he's going to explain some troubles that come. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain 
In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows uh, are dimmed, the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. All is vanity. So trouble comes. And when trouble comes, doesn't it make us look at the life that we live and the way that, that things exist as just, this is vain. This whole life that I live is in vain if I don't live it under God. If I don't live with Him, if I don't live in utter dependence upon Him, this life is vain. It's a vapor. It's passing away. I know there's a lot of young people in here maybe this morning that are going, what is this old guy talking about? I've got like tons and tons of days ahead of me. Enjoy your youth today and enjoy the Creator, God, while you still have time to enjoy that youthfulness is what the preacher says, right? And it's what I'm saying too. Enjoy Him uh, while you still have sound mind and sound body to do so because uh, a day may come. <laughs> when you don't have such a sound body and not such a sound mind. Yes, so the believer and the unbeliever alike, we feel the pain of the curse, don't we? We feel the, the futility uh, of life. Except that for the believer, we don't feel the futility of life in that we have an overcoming Savior, right? So in our text today, we're going to see Job. We're going to see Job is a faithful saint. Job is a blessed saint. Yet Job is a troubled saint. Job, though, is a praising saint. Job is a dependent saint. And trouble comes upon Job and it comes wave upon wave. If you're familiar with this book, you might recall that in addition to the troubles that come his way, he has well-meaning friends and they're not very helpful. Uh, in fact, they declare that his own sin has caused these calamities and troubles to come upon him and that it really this is all your fault. Right? His wife even encourages him to give up on God. She says... Job, with all the trouble that you are experiencing, man, don't you just realize that God has given up on you? Why don't you just give up on Him, curse Him, and die? Put yourself out of your misery. But Job replies and says, Should I not receive good from God as well as evil? Should I not receive both? I won't say... Well, I will say, he calls her a foolish woman. <laughs> foolish woman, you're just like the, you're like the women of the world, right? You're just like the women of the world. Should I not receive both from God? Should I not receive both? Well, how do we make sense of suffering? How do we make sense of trouble? How do we walk in hope 
in the fallenness and the brokenness that is obvious in our world? How do we respond to the fact that even the most faithful people in this life will have trouble? And I don't know where you guys sit at today, but I can bet you that there's a whole lot of troubled souls, even in just this room. That there, are, there is trouble that has come to your doorstep. You didn't invite it to your doorstep, or maybe you did, but, uh, but most likely you didn't invite it. It just came. It's the way life is, and trouble comes. You have troubled children. You have troubled adult parents. You have troubled relationships. Finances dry up sometimes. You have trouble with that. And trouble comes to us, even to the most faithful of people, even the faithful Saint Job. Let's look again at the first five verses of chapter one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when those days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job, it is said in this passage, was blameless. He was upright. He was faithful to God. With as much as was within him, he avoided evil. He turned away from sin. He was, as we can see in this passage, steadfast in his devotion to God. He was faithful to treasure the gifts that God has given him. He cared for his possessions. He was continually engaged in the battle for the souls of his children in sacrifice and in prayer. Job was so mindful of the glory of God that he, with steadfast devotion, constantly interceded on behalf of his own children. Well, could that be said of us? Well, I would love that that would be said of me. But when I examine my life, I go, well, I'm a little short of Job, you know. But even Job had sin. He was blameless in the eyes of God. None of us are without sin, and neither was Job. But he was called blameless and upright. His love for God did not waver. His dependence upon God did not waver. His devotion, his care for the blessings from God did not fail. Yet soon we will see that trouble will come to Job just the same. And the big question that we often have when these kinds of troubles come is, is it fair? Doesn't quite seem fair, does it? That you would say that Job is a blameless and upright man that he shunned evil, and that he feared God above all else. And yet trouble comes to him. Is it fair? You and I who are in Christ Jesus are blameless before God. 
Isn't that amazing? That we are blameless before God. Not without sin, but blameless. I would ask us this, and this is a point of conviction, so if you answer no to this question, trust me that I answered no to the question myself this week. Does the steadfast devotion of Job mark your life? Those of us who are forgiven in Christ, does his steadfast devotion, does that mark our devotion to Christ? Is the glory of God the deepest concern of your life as you raise your children, as you steward the blessings that God has given you? Even if this is true, even if you can fully say yes to this, the fallen state of the world we live in means that trouble will come even to the most faithful among us. But is it fair? And what is its purpose? See, Job, here in this first section, I'm calling him a faithful saint. And now we're going to see that he is a blessed saint. And even Satan knows that Job is blessed. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You see, there is an enemy for our souls. He is against our souls. There's an enemy out there. And what does he want to do? He wants to derail your faith, doesn't he? He wants to decommission you from your ministry here on earth. And it is the devil, Satan himself. He is our enemy. Sometimes we see life portrayed, the Christian life, or we see it even, you know, prayed out with those who are not necessarily uh, very religious in nature, but they will sometimes portray that there are forces of good and evil that are kind of equally opposed, right? They will say that like Satan and God, they have these opposing and they have these equal power and that sometimes good prevails, and sometimes evil prevails. But it's always kind of a wash. There's just two powers, and sometimes one outweighs the other. Well, what we see in this passage, and I hope that you guys understand this, is that Satan has absolutely no power and no authority except that which God allows him to have. Amen. He has none. Amen. He has no power whatsoever except for that which God allows him to have. And you know what? I think sometimes we get caught up in allowing Satan to have power that he doesn't deserve. Right? We attribute evil to things that are not necessarily evil. They're, they're good things, but we attribute them to evil. We, uh, we give him power that he does not have, that he does not deserve. 
Anything Satan has, the Lord has allowed it. Does that give you comfort, though, that, that when the tormentor of your soul comes to you, God has allowed that to come into my life. God has allowed that to come. Because he couldn't do it without him. Satan had to go here and ask permission, right? Satan has to go before God. And even, even God himself says to Satan, have you, considered, have you considered my servant Job? God is, 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 is declaring a whole lot about who Job is. Have you considered my servant? He loves me. He serves me. He's faithful. Right? Even God is saying this about Job, and yet trouble is about to come. Satan knows this, that God has blessed Job exceedingly and abundantly. God says uh, to Satan, in your travels, have you considered what a good servant Job is? Have you seen that Job places my glory at the forefront of his life? Have you noticed that he turns away from evil and that he turns to me instead and Satan says, of course he serves you. Of course he does. You have blessed him. You have protected him. He has a great family. He has great health. But if you bring some conflict into his life, he will curse you to your face. If you bring conflict into his life, he will curse you to your face. And Satan can only touch him insofar as God allows, as we said. Because in verse 12, he tells him, Behold, all that he has possessions is in your hand but only against him his person do not stretch your hand he can only do that which God has allowed so here is this blessed saint and trouble is about to come and it's going to come in serious waves Job the faithful saint Job the blessed saint and now here comes Job the troubled saint. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck, them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Trouble comes to blameless Job. Wave upon wave. Messenger after messenger comes piling one tragedy upon another tragedy. With no such time for Job to even catch his breath, another tragic message is about to come. The swords of war, fire from heaven, natural disaster, leave Job with destroyed servants, his livelihood decimated, and the blessings of all blessings, his children, dead. <sighs> Job could not depend upon wealth to bring him joy, could he? Because it was destroyed in an instant. 
Job could not depend on life just going along as it always has because storms come and storms can destroy. Job could, Job could not even count on keeping his family keeping his family intact to fulfill him in this life because family members can be taken in an instant as well. I know some people in our church, some people in our body who have suffered greatly in this life. I don't know anyone who suffered quite like Job. But I know illnesses in some people's lives that I know personally, followed by loss of family members, one tragic event seeming to follow another one. There are members of our body who we prayed for this morning who I who long for nothing more than to be in fellowship week after week after week. And yet, with each week comes to her an ailment that prevents her from being here. And when she thinks she has that ailment figured out, another one pops up. Personal illnesses, family crises, all of these things, they happen to all of us, don't they? But what is the point of all this struggle? What is the point? Well, all of our afflictions, every tragedy, every trouble, every trial are meant to bring us to the fountain of hope in Jesus Christ himself. In Christ we have a gem, don't we? We have a gem that is greater than all of the riches of the earth. He is the greatest treasure. So if all of your earthly treasures be gone, you still have the gem of Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure that cannot be taken. Right? In Jesus Christ, we have a union more secure than our closest family and friend relationships, don't we? If our family and our friends should pass away, we have a closer union with Jesus Christ. It's meant to point us to that treasure that we have in Him. The one thing that we cannot be independent from on the final day is the grace and mercy found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is upon Him that we will depend. It is in Him that we have the words of life. Jesus Christ is the treasure that we must depend upon in the day of trouble. Now notice that I want you to notice this and, and turn with me there to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to notice this, that this event is not unique to just Job. That this event, this is a description, I believe, of what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
So death is at work in us, but life in you. Think about that. We have this treasure in a very fragile jar, don't we? This tent that we live in, this life that we live in is very fragile. Trouble comes to it, for sure. And Paul here describes this very well, I think. We have the treasure of Jesus Christ and our salvation in these jars that are fragile, prone to brokenness, prone to pain, prone to be troubled, prone to trouble. When trouble comes, will you plead with God for your innocence? Will you accuse Him of being unfair and unjust? Will you have reason to accuse God if life goes tragically different than you imagine? Well, Job posed some of these same thoughts. If you would turn to chapter 9, I'm going to look at just a few of these verses. At chapter 9, let's look at, um, at first, let's look at verses 2 through 4. Job poses these questions later. He's troubled. He's had all of this tragedy come to him. And he poses these questions. How can a man be in the right before God? If one wishes to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Look down at verse 15 of chapter 9. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Move even further down to verses uh, 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Job, he's answering his friends and his <laughs> his wife, and all of the naysayers. And Job says, there's no earthly mediator between me and God who will advocate for me. But in chapter 16, Job says this in verse 19. Uh, chapter 16, verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. He makes his appeal to heaven, right? This is, this is Job looking forward to Jesus Christ. My mediator, my arbiter, as, he, as Job puts it in that language, my arbiter is in heaven. My mediator, Jesus Christ, is in heaven. In times of trouble, in the blessed times, even in the blessed times and in times of trouble, our plea before God, our innocence before God is this. This is our plea. Jesus Christ is my plea. Jesus is our Savior in whom we can depend. Jesus is truly the innocent one. Think about that. Jesus, our mediator. Does God, does God forsake the innocent? Does God not understand the innocent? Does God not understand that when troubles come, sometimes they come to the innocent, to the blameless, to the one who has no fault in it whatsoever, but trouble still comes. Does God understand the innocent? Yes, He does. 
God understands the innocent. He understands the innocent because Jesus, the truly innocent one, the truly innocent one was troubled. Troubled hard, right? Jesus, the truly innocent one, was tried illegally. Jesus, the innocent one, was tortured, though he was free of sin and blameless. Jesus was the one who was pronounced guilty without proof. He is the one to whom we appeal. God understands trouble coming to the innocent. The one who testifies for us when the devil accuses us day and night is Jesus. It is Jesus who by God's resurrection from the dead ever lives to intercede on our behalf. The word says, it is Christ. He is our plea. Jesus is our dependent declaration. And Job, here and in this book, says, okay, I've got to put my case. I have no arbiter here on earth. I have no mediator that can go between me and God. Christ had not yet come, right? And then later on he says, ah, but my mediator is in heaven. He'll judge whether I'm guilty or not. My mediator is in heaven. I will cast my trust upon him. So Job, the troubled saint, the faithful saint, the blessed saint. But let's look at verse 20 through 22 and see that Job was a dependent saint, a worshipful saint. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all that Job did, and uh, all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. See, Job was a faithful saint. He was a blessed saint. Job was a saint who had more than his share of trouble. Job, this dependent saint, says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, I am a dependent saint. Later on in the book of Job, you know, he says, Yet though he slay me, I will still serve him, right? Even if he slay me, I will serve him. Job is dependent. He knows that his, his whole spiritual life, his whole eternal life, hangs in the balance of depending upon God, his mercy, and his grace, even when he cannot understand it. Job has no understanding here of the trouble, does he? Could you, could you imagine that kind of trouble coming our way where it was one after another? One of them is enough to drive you away, isn't it? And then comes two, and then three, and then four. And then he strikes you where it hurts. You got to know what hurts a man like Job more than anything was the loss of his children. Because when you think about what Job did for his kids, they would go and be celebrating 
And Job would take them back and consecrate them and sacrifice for them and pray for them because, man, they might have had a cursing of God in their heart and I don't want them to be destroyed. And then, can you imagine, then he loses those children. That would have to be the most devastating thing. And think about those that you love and care for and you pray for and you intercede for that you just worry about night and day. I'm sure you've got family members you just worry about all the time because they're going off in a direction that you really know is not good for them. And then God forbid, you know, they would be taken away from you. How devastating that is. Is I interceded for them. I loved them. I begged and I pleaded for them. And they're gone, and now they, have, they don't have me to plead and beg for them anymore. Um, yeah, can you imagine that? Well, one thing I want us to note here about this whole passage is this, is that Job lived a praiseworthy life. The first thing to note is that a praiseworthy worthy life is one that praises God both in good times and bad times. A life that declares the mercy and the grace of God in dependence upon God. Job was a man who sought the glory of God in times of plenty and in times of loss. Is your life praiseworthy? And I ask us this because if all is stripped away and everything is taken from you, I hope that never happens to any of you. I'm just saying, if it does... Is the glory of God enough for you? Is God's glory and praise enough? If you have nothing else, is it enough? Is your salvation in Jesus Christ the treasure and the gem of your life? If it's the true gem and God would take everything else away, can you still say, Praise God. He is worthy of praise. I still hold the gem. And the gem holds on to me. I can't lose him. He's holding on to me. Right? That's the treasure that he is always holding on to us. Is the humble position that we live in this life, even when we have plenty, is that we are dependent upon God's grace and mercy. And is being dependent upon God's grace and mercy enough for us? If everything else were gone, I'm depending upon God's grace and mercy to get me through this. I don't understand it. It does not lessen the pain though, does it? I, I, don't, want us, I don't want you to get this wrong. That trouble is trouble and it hurts. It's really painful. I don't want us to be unsympathetic to people and say, well, at least you have Jesus. Right? Is that not very helpful? It's not very helpful for us to say, I understand your pain. I feel your pain. Let's see Jesus as our treasure in the midst of this pain. Let's depend upon him for his mercy and grace. Let's plead with him that cause. Right? When trouble comes, if you've not lived in dependence upon grace during times of blessing, the troubles, when they come, will seem even more overwhelming, won't they? If you've not lived in dependence upon God, when it's good, when trouble comes, 
it's even more devastating. Because now you've got to find him. You've got to search him. You've got to know how to connect with him. But if you've been dependent upon his grace and mercy just to get you out of bed every morning, trouble comes, I know where to go. I know how to get there. I know how to connect with him because I've been praying every day. And I communicate with him always. I know right where to go. But if we don't have that dependence in our lives, trouble's going to come, and it might be overwhelming. So I say, let us declare our dependence upon Christ today. And he is the one that we definitely must lean on because our lives are fragile. Our lives are fragile. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel, right? In jars of clay, easily broken. Let us take now just a moment of silence and reflect upon what God's Word has spoken to us this morning. And Father God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the treasure of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for your grace and mercy on us. I pray that we would encourage each other to depend upon you, to seek you, to um, be faithful servants, Lord. We don't ask for trouble. But when trouble comes, will you give us assurance in our heart that you are our, our one plea, that you are our one treasure. Help us, Lord, to be more dependent. Help us to walk in the truths that we saw this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.